All right. Good morning, friends. I hope you guys are doing well. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to keep going through our letter here to the Corinthians. Well, second one, I suppose. This may not be a super popular opinion, but when I left to come down to the church this morning, it was 46 and breezy, and I was like, praise the Lord. Finally, I didn't walk out of my house and sweat because somehow it's like 99% humidity in 63. So I don't know if it's from the fires in Canada or if it's from the cyclone in California, but I'm enjoying it. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. So as we've been going through this, remember we're in an interesting, actually kind of a singular part of Scripture because Paul is actually writing to the Corinthians and for the last two chapters... He's been essentially bragging, and (laughs) he even says that. He says, I'm going to speak as a fool, and he goes, so indulge me so I can speak as a fool for a while, and I'm going to boast, and what he's doing is, remember, and we we talked about this as we began it, Paul, he, he says it right in here, he's visited them three times, he was there for 18 months when they started, he started the church there. And he's written at least three letters to them. Now, I know this is 2 Corinthians, and forgive me for repeating myself, but in 1 Corinthians 6, remember he says, this is the second time I've written to you. So we have two of his letters, and we're missing one of the letters, right? So his whole motivation, everything he's been speaking through here, is that he cares for them. So it's not just Paul jockeying for a position, like I'm the best apostle, or I know the most, or I'm this or I'm that. He's the one who brought them the word originally, right? And so what's happening, these other people that are sneaking in, he calls them super apostles, ironically. Uh, He calls them uh, false teachers. And there's kind of two major, kind of, well, I guess three major schools of thought of where they could be coming from, right? You have Judaizers, which were people that came along, um, whether they were, had gotten saved or not gotten saved, they were essentially saying, look, Jesus is a fine start, but you also need to keep the Sabbath, the dietary laws, um, and, and the circumcision. So you can get saved, but you need to do these things too, which would be a works-based gospel, right? The next set of people were kind of Gnostics or mystic, kind of mystic people. And these were people that were, uh, they had different tenets to their faith, and obviously it would be kind of a, a flavor selection between Gnosticism and mysticism, but essentially they were people that, uh, Paul says there was a kind of a worship of angels in the sense that it wasn't just that uh, what had been revealed to the apostles and through his word. Remember, they don't have the Bible yet, right? The Bible's not going to come along for about 300 years in, in a collection. So they have the, the, some of the letters, some, you know, even John hasn't written some of his letters yet. But so you have people who are kind of coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, an angel revealed this to me, or I have this secret knowledge. Gnosticism is around this idea of kind of secret knowledge, and mysticism is that it's, it's, it's sought from the mystic or the heavens or something like that. So you have those people that are going around to different churches that the apostles started. And then lastly, you just have this idea of essentially kind of a sensualism, that Christ is a good start, but then, you know what, you kind of do whatever you got to do because you, you, you need to satisfy the cravings of the body because that's how you'll ultimately find contentment and different things like that. So you kind of have these three different false teachers and teachings. So Paul's writing back to Corinth, uh, and apparently they kind of have a, have a uh, potpourri of all of that, right? 
they have a lot of uh, people that are going down a, a profoundly uh, immoral road. They have people that are uh, trying to bring them into uh, the law, following the law as part of Christianity. Uh, and then they have uh, you know, the Gnostics and the mystics that are there too. So when Paul's doing this boasting, when he's saying, look, and remember what he boasted about, right? He boasted about things like, uh, I've been caned by the Jews three times, you know, 39 times, or 40 minus 1, 39 times. He talked about he had been beaten so many times he can't remember. He talks about shipwreck. So the things that he's boasting in are a little bit different than what we might see people boast in today. A lot of times, if, if you're going to see uh, Christian minister boast or so-called Christian ministers boast, boast it's going to be in what they have. Look at my big church. Look at my private jet. Look at, you know, whatever it might be, this idea that I have so much material stuff. Look what God is doing. But Paul's going the other route. And he's saying, do you know how I love you? Because I spent three nights shipwrecked three different times. Who does that? Who's willing to do that? How did he get shipwrecked three different times? Going to minister to people. How did he get beaten three times by the Jews? Because he insisted on preaching the gospel. How did he get uh, beaten by the Romans? Because he, 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 he unintentionally started riots with the, the gospel. So over and over again, the things that he's pointing to are not, look at all this material stuff I have from the world. He's saying... You can look at my life and know that I'm telling you the truth and, that, and I love you. That validates the truth that he's sharing. Does that make sense? The reason for the boasting is not for his personal stature. The reason for the boasting is so they will credit the message that he's bringing. So two completely different things. And over and over again, he talks about the fact that he loves them so much. So in chapter 12, he's going to go on with a pretty incredible uh, account uh, that occurred to him, and then he's going to talk about kind of a difficulty that came with that account. And this is all part of his boasting. We'll actually start off in chapter 11 and just read it for context, and then we'll jump into chapter 12. So he says here in chapter 11, verse 30, he says, If I, mo if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, in chapter 12, that word's going to come up six different times, and it means uh, a lack of strength or disease in Greek. So um, it's a, excuse me, it's a physical detriment that he's going through. He says, I'll boast about the things that show my weakness. For God and Father, excuse me, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, uh, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the uh, Damascians guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Where it was, uh, excuse me, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. So we'll stop there. Now, this is part of his ironic speech, right? Not like he's giving a speech, but what he's saying here. So he makes the point, and, and you might have noticed he's pretty emphatic right off the bat, right? So he's talking about some sort of experience that he has, and he, I know he says, I know a man, and we'll talk about that. 
But this is an experience where he has, and he's, he's somehow caught up to paradise. Uh, and we don't want to argue about what's paradise, what's heaven. We know that Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. The same word is used here. But he's caught up to this place where evidently the presence of God is, right? So however you want to label it. And he says that he heard things there that he's not able to share here, right? Then he goes on to say, and he makes an interesting statement. He says, I won't boast about myself, but I'll boast a man about a man like that, right? And so we'll talk about that, that irony in a second. But just as a, to point out, he says twice over, whether it was in the body or the out of the body, I do not know. So I just, it seems like that should be pretty straightforward. But there, if, if you read about this or you look into it, there's so many um, perspectives and, I, and just a million, was it this or was it that? You know, I feel like if Paul says, I don't know, I don't know, we probably won't either. And it seems like he knows us, right? Because he says, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And this man in Christ was caught up to paradise. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. You think if he's that emphatic, we can be like, that's cool. Yeah, I don't know. But evidently, he had some sort of experience. And in his experience, unlike many others that we read about, he says, what I saw, I'm not allowed to talk about. But he says, I had revelation. So what is he doing? He's boasting, because he says he's boasting. But he's pointing out to the Corinthians, who are wrestling with teaching and these different things, look, this is the kind of thing that God brought about in my life. And this is the kind of thing I'm sharing with you. right? Because he cares about them, he loves them, he's laying down his life for them. Now, why does he say that he knows a man? Well, in the, in, instead of just saying, this happened to me. Well, the point is this, because in, in what he finalizes, he says, I will boast about a man like that. And the, the point that he's making there is this. Who can, if you will, catch themselves up to heaven? The word caught up, it's the same word that uh, occurs in uh, 1 Thessalonians, the word uh, rapture, which we get from the Latin Vulgate, which is raptus, and that's where, because people will say, the word rapture, it's never in the Bible. In Greek, it's not. In, in Latin, it is. So, or that the Latin word comes from. Anyway, all that to say is, he's saying, I was raptured into heaven. I got caught up into heaven. He says, I'm not going to boast about that man because he himself didn't do it, did he? Has anybody raptured themselves to heaven? Has anybody been like, here I go, you know? No, we haven't. And so Paul's making a boast about something that occurred in his life, but he himself had nothing to do with it. Because he's going to go on to there, uh, from there, and he says, uh, verse 6, Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. So he tells us, he says, the reason I'm speaking this way, it wouldn't be wrong if I were to boast about myself, but he goes, I don't want anybody to think more of me than what they should think of me. And you really have to love this, right? I, mean, I think, or at least appreciate it. That Paul's heart is, I don't want people to think more of me than what they should, right? What are the other statements he made about himself? Well, he talks about how he, he hurt for the Corinthians, that he wept when he handed off that, uh, the letter that we have. When he handed off 1 Corinthians, he wept because it knew, he knew that it would hurt them. Uh, we have Paul calling himself the chief of sinners, right? He says, I'm the chief, I'm the worst sinner that has ever lived, right? So these are, these are if you will, his, his statements that he's made about himself and who he is. So he comes to this place, he says, my goal is not for you to think all these great things about me. And I think that that's an important idea for us as human beings, 
and for, as Christians in the world and Christians at church, our goal is not to exalt ourselves, right? That's the world's goal. The world's goal is, is, is to exalt themselves. And, and I'm not saying everybody's out there maliciously saying, look how great I am, but it's how the world asserts dominance. It's how the world gets what it wants. It's, these are ways that people act. It's how the world feels secure, right? It, you know, it's funny when you see, well, we won't go into it because I'm not trying to call people out, but it's, you, you see all these ways that we try to exalt ourselves in, in, because we're trying to find value. But Paul here is saying, look, and he's going to go on to make it very clear, my value is Christ. I was caught up to heaven because of Christ. I, I, and I, and I, could, I could go on talking more and more and more about all the things that God has revealed to me. He says, but if I did that, you would think higher than me than what you should. And I think that's also important because we have a tendency to put people on pedestals, right? We have a tendency to, and you see it especially when some big-time pastor fails and people are just lost and they're ready to stop following Jesus and they can't believe it and all these things. It, it, but here's the thing. Nobody warrants any kind of pedestal in the ministry. Can we be thankful for people? Sure. Are we thankful that Paul took the time to write, all this, write down this stuff as he was inspired by God? I think so. Right? But he doesn't deserve a pedestal. Nobody does, save Christ. Right? So it's an important attitude to take in consideration. He says, look, I don't want you to think highly of me more than you should. I just want you to know that I care about you, I've written these things to you, and they're the truth. And that's his heart in that. But he makes another interesting statement there in the end of verse 5. He says, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. And this is the same word. And it's this idea, again, of a lack of strength or of disease. Verse 6, he says this, but even if I should boast, I'm sorry, I read that in verse 7, or because of these surpassing great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. I'm like, well, that's cool. <laughs> I'll skip the revelations, please. Right? So Paul says, I, I could go on boasting. Everything that I would say was true. I'm not going to do that because I don't, you don't need to have a higher opinion of me that's warranted. He's just a human being. And then he goes on to say, because of all these things that God has, has shown me and revealed to me to pass on to you, I also got a thorn in the flesh. Now, the word flesh there is like it always is sarka in the Greek. It's the idea in my dead flesh, in this body, this dying body. So I want to make a, a note here because I've, I, I've heard in the past, um, I don't know if I want to call it an excuse because I don't think everybody is using it as an excuse, but it, a difficult idea. They say this. They say, well, I have this besetting sin in my life. And it's because Jesus hasn't given me the victory over it yet. And so this is my thorn in the flesh that God has given me, right? And it's an out-of-context idea. I understand feeling stuck in my sin. I understand feeling like I have a habitual sin in my life. When X occurs, I always respond with Y, right? If I get cut off in traffic, I always rage. If I'm a home alone, I always look at porn. If I'm, you know, whatever it might be, I get having sin in our lives that we feel like I can't beat this. That's understandable. In fact, it's called in Hebrews the besetting sin which easily overtakes us, right? So we don't have a problem that we might have weaknesses in our life and that those are weaknesses are real. But where we make the mistake is where we say, God hasn't given me the victory yet because that's just not true. We, and we say it different ways. We might say, oh, I have the demon of pornography on me or in my life. Or I have the demon of alcoholism or I have this or whatever. 
And when we say things like that, what we're doing is we're saying, my sin is not my fault. It's, it's Satan made me do it, right? We know that one. The devil made me do it. The devil actually never made anyone do everything. Maybe you could make an argument for Judas because it says Satan entered him. Maybe. But outside of that, Satan tempts people. Satan seems to be able to make suggestions. But Satan has never made anyone do anything. We have chosen to do what we've done. We might have gotten high first and then chosen to do what we did, right? But, it, you know, if you, if you, for example, if you get a Dewey and you wipe out a family, they don't go, oh, that's cool. You were altered, right? So you're still responsible. We're responsible for what we do, right? And it's important. So what, is, and we'll come back to besetting sin, but in, so Paul here in his thorn in the flesh and notice he doesn't tell us what it is. And this is another place where there's a, a million ideas of what it could be, right? It's not besetting sin because victory was won in Christ. And as soon as we receive Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit, we receive power over sin. And that's a whole nother fantastic teaching out of Romans 6, 7, and 8. But in this case, Paul is saying that Satan somehow is allowed to buffet him. And that means to, uh, and essentially to, to buffet is to hit or to cause damage, right? And we don't have too big of a problem. Not, we don't like it, per se, but Job had the same thing. Remember, in Job, it's, it's very interesting. One of the things that kind of stood out to me, I've been reading Job lately, is the casualness of the conversation, and that's an inference, so I want to be careful, but the casualness of the conversation between, uh, between God and Satan. I don't know if you've read those chapters, but you, you know, the way you, you hear people pray and, and so forth, you think it'd be like this big assault. But God, literally, there's a day where all the angels come and present themselves. You go, what does that mean? He doesn't say. All right, it just happened. So there's this time that all the angels come and present themselves to God. And Satan comes too, it says. And God says to Satan, where have you been? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You know, he doesn't get all riled. He doesn't go, I'm going to crush your face. I hate you. You're terrible. He's just like, what have you been doing? Just completely casual. And it's not like God was unaware. I think it's the idea that we see many times in heaven and other places where what's being revealed is that God openly invites, you know, that kind of input and confession and that type of thing. But he says, where, what have you been doing? Where have you been? And he says, well, you know, I've been roaming around the earth. I've been chilling around the earth. And then he says, God says, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> I mean, obviously, who won't? But if you're Job, you feel like, I, I would like to have some words when I get to heaven. right? <laughs> I feel like I got the short end of the stick on that one. But there's no wildness. There's no like, you will not touch my servants. You're there's no like, I will cry. Just, have you thought about Job? And he's like, of course I don't mess with Job. You protect him from everything. And God's like, well, I'll tell you what. You can mess with anything. You just can't kill him. Such casualness. It's, it's just wild how, how God has such assurance in who he is and his, his ultimate victory. But what happens? Job is buffeted. And then you basically have whatever 39, 40 chapters of bad advice from friends. <laughs> right? And Job, you know, it's funny because Job gets really sassy. And he's just like, he, to one of his, his friends, he says, look, I realize that wisdom will die with you. <laughs> but maybe you could hear me out. So you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to remember that someday if I'm really sick. But, you know, it's a, 
The point is that, that, we don't, that, that all through Scripture, there are times and places where God either actually inflicts or allows difficulty into a life. And in this case, this is what Paul says. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So a couple things about this. Number one, just before we get into the, the, uh, the difficulty, or I should say that the prayer, Paul says this, I prayed three times. So what can we draw from that? Well, Paul felt liberty to pray three times, right? He felt like it was okay to pray three times. He didn't just say, I'm just going to shut up and take this, or God just want, must want to do this, or I just have to be quiet and endure this. That he was able, and you see this in the Psalms a lot with David, where David says, I'm going to lay my complaint before the Lord. Now, obviously there's some reverence there, but I think it's important to realize that Paul, at the very least, thought it would be appropriate to ask God to heal him. And when God said no, and we don't have a timeline for the occasions, we don't know if, it doesn't seem like it was at one time, perhaps it was, whether it was years or, uh, you know, three minutes or whatever it was, he felt the liberty to come to God multiple times after God had told him no, or not today, or not right now, to keep coming back and saying, like, no, for reals, can you please heal me for this? And multiple times God said no, because my grace is going to be sufficient for you. So number one, I, I want to point out that it is appropriate and it is essential, if I could say that, and it's scriptural to come forward with our difficulties and ask God for healing. And we ought to. There's a lot of promises about that. That he, he loves and he wants to heal. That, that salvation isn't just a, a, a one-time salvation thing. Although once you're saved, I believe you're saved. I'll be eternal security the day I, day I die, I think. But that there's things that come with salvation. That there's Holy Spirit power. That there's Ability to cope that there's healing if you ask for it. Sometimes. But sometimes there's not. And when there's not healing, when there's not uh, a removing of the, the thorn in the flesh, I don't, I, and, here, and we can try to like measure, well, do I have a thorn in the flesh or do I just have a cold? You know, who knows, right? And I don't, think, I don't think we have to really wrestle with that, right? I think we can have a little bit of simplicity with that. Where we say, I've asked God to take this away and he has not. So I have received an answer, right? I have all these other promises of the scripture of his grace and his kindness and the power of his spirit that I don't have to have every ailment. I don't have to have this all taken away. Now if we get into it, Jesus' response is quite interesting. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now this is probably really great for like a good, you know, get well card or something, right? Or somebody's sick and so you just text them, well, hey, your power is sufficient. You're welcome. Right? But what does this really mean? You ever thought about that? Like, what is it, how is it possibly helpful for Jesus to tell Paul, yeah, I know you're really hurting, but my grace is enough. How do you digest that? What do you do with that? How does that practically work out? When you're laying in your bed with full of anxiety or anger or whatever as a result of pain, how do you say, okay, this is going to help me now. This will make, help me to move forward now. How do I process this idea of God's favor is enough? Well, first of all, I think we have to, we have to answer the question, what's favor? 
right? What is God's favor? Uh, grace, if you're familiar, is the, the Greek word is charis, and it's the idea, it, literally, it's in the word, that we have God's favor, that he looks at you, you as a Christian, as a human, just in general, but also especially as a Christian, and he says, I have favor for you. I favor you. Right? So it, to have favor with someone, if we put it into worldly terms, if I, ha, if I get a ticket and I go before a judge and that judge has favor for me, then they will reduce or, or get rid of that ticket right? within the law. So it's important to understand that he does not look at you through wrath, through guilt, through uh, disappointment in the sense of like, you're not really my child. That's not how God's looking at you. He's looking at you. It doesn't mean he never is disappointed with, with things that we do, but he's not disappointed with you. He loves you. He's got plans for you. He's got uh, fellowship for you with himself and with others. He's got calling for you. He has a life to be walked in for you. Right? The, 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 he wants to do great things in your life. And just because you may be experiencing very difficult things, and that's one thing I don't want to do up here at all, is minimize anyone's experience in their life. So please don't at all think that at some point I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. I'm sure it is. And, I, and I, I'm not here to, to make a judgment uh, on, on what's good or bad in your life. But I am here to point out that no matter how bad something is, that if God is allowing it in your life and he's not taking it away upon your request, that there's something to be gained from it. Is it something from this world? Probably not, right? If you're unable to work and make big dollars, it's probably not from this world. But ultimately, that's okay, right? What, what is our goal? What is our true, ultimate goal in life? We have to ask ourselves that. Because there's plenty of side goals, right? Good retirement or a nice house or a nice car. And those are great things. We're not ever going to minimize those things. But hopefully, that's not our goal, Right? Hopefully our goal is his kingdom and his righteousness, right? Jesus told us straight up that if we seek first his kingdom, what does that mean? Fellowship with him, fellowship with others, being part of building that kingdom and not tearing it down, right? Being but my life goal to be caring about what Jesus says about in my life and then to be extending that to other people, the promises he's given me. That if I pursue that, then all he says, all these other things, the things that you need, not everything that we want, the things that we need will be added to us. So it's important that as human beings, as, as people, if you are a person claiming faith, that what do you actually believe? If you actually believe that Christ saved you, and I don't mean actually like, I don't think you do. I just mean if, you actually, if that's really your doctrinal statement of faith, that the blood of Christ that he shed at Calvary forgave my sin... For now and forevermore, all the Greek uh, that's there points to this eternal idea and that he rose from, the, from the, the grave victorious over death and that when I got saved, he attached his Holy Spirit to my soul and he's giving me power to walk with him and to be blessed by him and to bless others through his promises and his goodness. If that's what I truly, you know, that's really the, the, the goal of my life or if that's really what I believe, then how could I look this is rhetorical, how could I look at sin and say this is a good idea? What did I get saved from then? Why would I want to be saved if sin is actually pretty good, pretty great? So we have to kind of evaluate, like, what do we actually believe? At the end of the day, 
if I believe what the scripture teaches me, not just about my salvation, that I got saved because Jesus Christ paid for sin through his blood, but that now he has a life for me, if I believe that, I want to keep coming to him, taking action to come to him, not to earn his, his favor or to earn him doing stuff or earn him healing me or something like that, but to be positioned to have all that he has for me, to receive all that he has for me. Right? So, so Paul, he's saying here, look, when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, what are the promises that go along with that favor? Well, in Romans 8, he's talking about Christians. He says that he works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He says, you know, Jesus told us that we don't have to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough evil of its own. Tomorrow's going to be plenty of evil, right? Plenty of bad stuff is going to go on in this world tomorrow. Stuff that we have absolutely no control over and we never will, right? So I don't have to worry about it. Instead, I can just get up tomorrow morning and go, what do you want today, Lord? How can I walk with you today? What is it that you would have me do? Now, if you have a job, I can about guarantee you that he's going to say, go to work, right? We're not, we don't have to get up and go, should I be faithful at work today? You should, right? That's just in the Bible. We don't have to like think through that. But you might say, is there someone I could talk to at lunch tomorrow? Is there someone I could talk to in my 15-minute break? Maybe when I'm on, the way, you know, on my way home from the store and I stop and get something because I don't want to cook tonight. You know, maybe I can meet someone at the store. You see what I'm saying? All of a sudden, we're opening ourselves up to opportunity, to availability, and now we're living that kingdom life. Sometimes we can think like, oh, kingdom life means I have to hunker down and never enjoy anything, and just, that's not what he's saying. It's a freedom, an openness to say, you know, I'm going to walk with God today. So that we have promises that, that he'll always provide for us. We have promises that we don't have to worry about tomorrow. We have promises that we don't, uh, that we don't have to worry about his his. Uh, our acceptance, because we're accepted in Christ. So we have all these parts. So when he says, my favor is enough for you, it's not an abstract, like somewhere out there, there's some grace of God, and maybe it'll kind of like hit me upside the head. It's the idea that God is on, constantly working and moving in our lives. And it's for us to position ourselves in a place that we can receive it, right? So you come to church, right? Hopefully, this is a place where you can receive God's favor in your life, right? Through his word where you, you get to hear the promises, where you get to talk to other people that are around you. Perhaps you, you build trusting relationships. And, you know, if you, if you uh, decide to talk to people afterwards or whatever, right? These are, you don't have to talk to anybody after church. Do you guys know that? What? You can just get up and leave. Or you could stay. I realize it means that El Compadre might have a line, Right? <laughs> You're all Christians, so I know you guys get Mexican afterwards. But you know, it's, it's, I get it. But there's something to be invested in. And I'm not saying you have to. And don't, if you're like, well, I was just going to leave today. God bless you. They just leave today. So I'm not, my, my goal is not to make people feel weird about walking out. Like you have to like mill around for like five minutes and then be like, okay, was that enough? Is, no. <laughs> leave. That's fine. Like you got stuff to do. But if you, if you're, if you have needs... And desires and fears that you're not overcoming, you feel stuck in your sin, you should probably stick around. You have an opportunity to talk to people. You have an opportunity to, to, to build relationships. It's just all about opportunity. And so God constantly affords us opportunity to receive the things that he has for us. But a lot of times we're just too busy or we're just not interested. You know, I don't know, sometimes I don't know about you, 
this doesn't happen very often to me because I'm not a super spiritual guy, but on occasions, God will wake me up in the, in the morning too early and be like, hey, why don't you spend some time with me? Let's wake up, it's on my mind. And I'm like, I could do that or I could roll over and go back to sleep. And a lot of times I roll over and go back to sleep because I feel tired because I don't trust God to not make me not tired for the rest of the day. I start thinking in my head, well, if I get up now, well, then I'll be all tired and then two o'clock will come around and I'll be like snorting coffee to stay awake. Like, you know, what's going to, how can I do this, right? It all comes back to like, I don't believe that you'll actually do the things that you said you'll do in my life. I don't actually believe that you have the power to sustain me at 2 p.m. when I'm tuckered out. That's what it boils down to. So if I find that I'm getting stuck in my sin, if I find that you know, it's, it's about me being open and, and, and seeking what God has for me. In this case, with Paul, God had something hard for him. Not negative, but hard. And he says that you're going to have this. Now, it could be, and I don't want to surmise too much, but the one thing that we do know about Paul is he had some pretty radical eye disease. Because he says to the Galatians, he said, you guys would have gouged your own eyes out and given them to me. That's how much they loved him. At the end, I believe it's Galatians, but I can't remember. At the end of one of his letters, he says, see, I, Paul, am writing the ending. Look how big the letters are, which makes me snicker every time. He said, like, I can't see very well, so I have to make big letters so that you guys... So that's, you know, Paul evidently had to use, he couldn't see very well. Um, he makes some points that it seems to be that it wasn't really great to look at. Maybe it was it watered or oozed a lot or something like that. But, but even though he was hard to look at, the, the Galatians received him like they would have received Christ. So perhaps that's it. Perhaps he was like, man, I wish I could see well. But so it's, it's interesting because he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because for a guy who can't see well, he sure wrote a lot of letters, didn't he? And here we are reading them 2,000 years. Well, how did he do it? Well, he had people that he just dictated to, right? Evidently, he wasn't that great of a speaker because he says in, in chapter 11, he says, you're saying I'm not a great speaker. And he says, well, maybe I'm not, but God still uses me because I have a lot of knowledge that God's given me. So there are, there, it's, it's important to point out that even though we might have limitations, and, and limitations can be very devastating, can't they? You might want to go out and do something and you just can't. It gets discouraging. It gets depressing. You might be considered, you know, if, you're, if you have some sort of disability that, that is like, that uh, relies on medicine, that can be really scary, right? If, what happens if I don't get my heart meds? What happens if I, if I don't get my insulin? What happens if I don't get, you know, whatever it might be? And so that can become very scary, right? Those are opportunities that if you need heart medicine to live and you don't get it, then either Jesus takes you home and you're in paradise, or he's going to provide. He's going to heal your heart. Right? It's, it's, it, and I know that I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm just making the point that you literally have nothing to fear in your weakness. His favor will sustain you. And, and it's, it's important that when we begin to spiral because of fear or because of disdain for what God has allowed in our life or one of these things, that we either phone a friend or go to prayer or go to worship music or go to his word or go someplace where we stop the spiral. And we say, no, you know what? He works all things together for good. And it was Job whose supportive wife told him, curse God and die. And it was Job who said, hey, if he kills me, I'll trust him. If God slays me, I'll trust him. 
We, and I, I want to be careful here, because we're not to seek death by any means. We're not saying that. But I think, as for myself, and, and maybe you can identify with this, I put too much value on this life. I really do. Too much value on wanting to be comfortable. Too much value on wanting to make sure that, I, that all my ducks are in a row and that I can have a good retirement and all those things. If you have a good retirement, God bless you. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not our goal. It's never our goal. Our goal is to be near Jesus. And if we're near Jesus, then we don't have to worry about the rest. I'm not saying we should be unwise, but we don't have to worry. So he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, it's an incredible testimony uh, when you see someone who overcomes difficulty that God has not healed. We don't look at that and go, well, that's a dirty shame, do we? We look at that and we go, that's incredible. That's amazing. You know, uh, what was the, the swimmer? I can't remember. Jenny? Jenny? Johnny? Johnny? I'm not mocking her. I literally can't remember. Yeah, so she dives in, right, and, 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 and receives a, a spinal injury. She becomes quadriplegic. She goes on to paint with her mouth and to preach the gospel to millions. I mean, I, and, and, you know, Tam read her book and read some of it to me at different times, and she had huge wrestlings, as you might imagine, huge wrestlings with her faith, huge wrestlings of the whys and the hows and those things. But she was a person who decided to give it to God. Here it is, every day, every thought, it's yours. And yet God used her to incredible things for his kingdom. Did she go on to run again and feel that? No, she never did. Instead, she was a hero of the faith. So I guess we have to kind of count the cost. Not that everybody has to become a quadriplegic to do that. But what, what am I willing to give up to see God's victory in my life? And to see those around me know him better. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. And it literally is, it's, 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 the word delight there is to be well pleased. So he's come to this place in his life, not just because he's this super strong guy and he does everything right, because he's allowed God's favor into his life. That's what it is. It's not special people. It's not special endurance. It's not unique, like, oh, my goodness, I could never do that. Can I just toss out, no, make, not trying to make anybody a offender for a word here, but when we look at difficulty, we go, I could never do that. You're shortchanging yourself. You absolutely could do that. You could go through any difficulty if you allow Christ in to work in your heart while you go through it. When you think about these guys like William Tyndale or many, many, many others that went to the stake when they were translating the Bible from uh, Latin to, to Greek so that the common people could read it. And they, you know, they burnt at the stake. They got lead, molten lead poured down their throat. Uh, they got quartered, drawn and quartered. All these crazy things that happened to them. They were just normal dudes. In fact, when you read, if you want to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which a lot of the information comes from, it's, he collected a bunch of eyewitness accounts about martyrdom. You know, a lot of these guys, it's funny, they made like, especially people, guys that were getting together and doing translations, they would make like agreements with each other. There's, there's one in there specifically where three guys, three guys are translating, because it became illegal essentially um, to translate the Bible out of Latin uh, by decree of the Pope. And so a lot of these guys were, that's why they were getting slain, because they were trying to get the, the word into the common people's hands. So, they would, uh, there were three guys, they were all translators, 
and they were feared getting burnt at the stake. Imagine that. And, uh, and so they said, hey, if one of us gets caught and, and, and goes to the stake, um, if it's bearable, like, you've got to wave. You've got to, like, lift your hand up or wave. And so one of them eventually gets caught months later, and they burn him. And he died waving his arm, singing hymns. And, and you can read his, his legs swole up, his face swole up, his flesh melted. And there he is waving, singing hymns. Because he's just a super strong guy. No, because God's super strong. And, and we really can do, endure anything that comes our way through his strength. It's a true story. It's not just a, a verse for Christian wrestling teams that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is, that might be slightly out of context because they don't get first every year, but <laughs> the idea there is that we can go through any difficulty that God has for us. So he says, I'll glorify in my weaknesses. I'll, I'll, I'll delight in them. That This is something I'm okay with doing because as cheesy as it might sound, every weakness that we endure is an opportunity for God to work. It's an opportunity to, for grace to, to flow out. We just get to decide whether we give them the opportunity or not, right? As soon as difficulty enters my life, I can go to worry or anger, or I can say, okay, this is difficulty. Lord, I need you to show up. But all the promises are that it, he'll, he'll show up. So I would just encourage you to, and myself in that, to, to let him show up. So then he says, in verse 10, he says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So this idea here, the first thing he brings up, he says, uh, weakness in insults. And it, it just means the exact same thing in Greek as the, the English word we have here. That even when he's insulted, and that's what was going on, right? I mean, he's being insulted left and right by the Corinthians. And he's saying, hey, it's okay. It's okay, because he knows who his God is, right? He, he knows God. These things are really impossible to do if we don't know God, right? Not if we're, I'm not talking about saved or not saved. I'm talking about knowing God, right? Because it's two different things. It's one thing to have received Jesus and be forgiven of our sins. It's a whole different thing to actually have a relational um, understanding of who God is, that, that he speaks into my life and that he leads me, that I give him opportunity uh, to get healing in my life, that I give him opportunity to provide for me, that I give him these opportunities. So in, when we get insulted, we can either lash back out, right? Insult me, huh? Do you know how stupid you sound? Do you know how stupid you sound that man came from a monkey? Don't you understand? I mean, you know, we can get all riled about that, just like they do to us, Right? We can get all riled when, when we meet other people that, that have different views than we do, that want to insult us and our intelligence or whatever. And, and we can just, we don't have to be. We don't have to respond to that because we know who the Lord is, right? So if somebody doesn't like what we believe, that's okay. We don't have to feel scared by that. We don't have to feel scared by what's being taught in our schools. We don't have to, we don't have to be scared by that. We're not intimidated by that because we know the truth. And if they want to insult us, and all, that's fine. We know who God is, right? We have our relationship with him. So he says, I delight in insults. Not like, I love it when people tear me down, but I love it when God gets to, to comfort me. And I can bring those insults that hurt to him and say, well, this really hurt. And he can heal me. He says, in hardships. Now, the, the word hardship here, it's the idea of uh, necessity, in times of necessity. 
So he says, I delight, when I find that I have this need that I can't satisfy myself, whether it's financial or whatever it might be, he goes, I, I delight in it. I get so amped because it's an opportunity to see God work. And, and here's the deal with these opportunities. It's kind of one of those things where like, you never actually know until you start, right? It's always a theory. Uh, this is something about trust. I, always, I bring this up in a lot of my, whenever I do a premarital or something like that. Trust is an interesting beast, right? Because you can't force trust, right? If you tell someone, you have to trust me, can that person actually trust you? No. Why? Because trust is built. Trust is experience, it, it, experiential knowledge. That's what trust is, right? I'll trust that you don't hurt me when you don't hurt me, right? Because if, if someone's hurting you and they just say, well, you have to trust me, that's just a selfish demand that you can't fulfill, right? But can be built. Trust can be built, right? And so it is with God. God is not saying to you, you just have to trust me. What he's saying to you, if you've never trusted him, and this is, and this is all you can do to build trust in any context, is take a risk. That's the hard part about trust, about faith, Right? You have to take risks in order to build faith. In other words, you might have a, a, a little faith or a little part. You go, you know what? I believe that God saved me. And, and his word says that he'll provide for me. So you know what? I'm going to take a step, some step that he might call you to. I'm going to step forward and, and, and see if he provides for me. And then he does. And now all of a sudden you have this little trust thing that got built, Right? And so next time, you're not coming into it blind. You're saying, hey, you know what? I trusted God in this thing, and, and he came through, so I'll, I'll trust him in this thing. And then all of a sudden, you have that built up. And then pretty soon, you know, you're going to these crazy lengths and just trusting God for these crazy things because you actually trust him. Does that make sense? So until we are willing to take a risk on God, we're never going to experience God and trust him. So we're never going to be able to delight in hardships because we have to have a hardship that we let him work in before we can actually experience that. And that's the scariest part of faith, I think, is kind of starting that cycle. So he says uh, there are hardships and persecutions. Well, persecutions is, is someone directly targeting you and causing you grief for something. In this case, it's for the truth of the cross, right? The grace that God has for people. That's why Paul calls it the scandalous grace of God, the scandalous cross. Because grace is scandalous. We don't like it. We like it for us, but not for other people. The idea that God could just be gracious to that person and kind to them and love them and save them, do you know who they are? Obviously, he had grace for me. I kind of deserve it. Right? That's how we act sometimes. But he has this incredible grace across the board, and people will persecute us for that, and that's fine. In difficulties, difficulties are actually a different word than hardships. It's the root word here is to hold or contain. It's the idea of when something holds you back or something kind of presses in on you, like pressure, right? And he says, I delight when there's difficulties in my life. Because I know that when something holds me back, like take, for example, he tries to go up into a certain area to preach the gospel, and it says the Holy Spirit told him, no, don't go up there in Acts. So what does he do? He starts a school right on the border and teaches all these people the word, and it says that all those people went out and shared the word in Achaia. So it's, here's this limitation. God says, no. Paul says, okay, what about this? 
Gus says, okay. So he starts the school, and all of a sudden, there's all, what, what Paul wanted to do himself, God said, no, I want you to help other people so that they can be involved in my kingdom instead. So he says, I, I, love, I love difficulties. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And the idea isn't that he just never <laughs> experiences weakness or that somehow he just feels all, ha, ah, you know, when he's weak. The idea is when he is unable to act in an effective way or do something in an effective way, that then God's strength takes over and that thing happens and it's incredible, right? So these are, these are kind of like ethereal ideas that kind of float around in there. They're kind of ethereal verses like his grace is sufficient. But the reality is these are true grounded ideas. And it really just boils down for us, what am I going to choose in this life? What's going to be the priority of my life? It's not about if I'm going to struggle or not struggle. We're going to struggle. We're going to have difficulties. We're going to suffer. But even in that, God has all these promises for healing and fellowship and nearness and, and, and joy and peace that all come supernaturally through His Spirit. So if I even decide to step out in this difficulty, am I willing to allow God... Well, I guess that's one and the same question, right? Am I willing to allow God the opportunity, the risk, to show Himself faithful in my life? And if the answer is no, and I don't step out, I can't really complain, can I? That God's not doing these miracles in my life because I'm not giving him opportunity. And if I'm, if I'm you know, press, you know, pressing forward in my own will with my own opportunities and my own desires and my own, all this, and, I, and I'm not really giving thought to God's ideas and, and his perspectives, then I can't really be surprised when I'm dry and depressed and full of anxi you know, anxiety. If I'm, if I'm plowing away and not giving any thought to what God is doing, or very minimal thought, or if I'm going through struggle and I'm going, where is God? Why are you speaking to me? Well, you guys are at church, so preaching to the choir, right? But am I going to a place where God's word is? Am I, am I what, for me, I've shared this before. <clears throat> if I'm you know, wrestling with something or upset about something or whatever, I always have two avenues. This is just me. I'm not making any rules for everybody else. I will either turn on a fantasy book series in my car and when I'm driving somewhere, or I will turn on worship music. And if I decide I'm going to go with James's flesh, it's not the worship music. It's entertainment. That's what it is for me. I, I'm, I'm as nerdy as it gets when it comes to fantasy. I don't believe in magic and all that stuff. Nobody has to worry. I'm not going like, <laughs> to bow down to Baal or something. But I love me some knights and some wizards. I like... <laughs> I do. Like, fireball! You know, it's so nerdy. I just, I'm into it. So I love fantasy books. You know, I'm not going to sacrifice or try to cast any spells. Please don't worry about it. But I love fantasy books. And so I can put a fantasy book on on the car, and, I just, and it's going on in my mind. I'm just how bad it. And I'm like, yeah. And the fighting's going on. And like, here am I sitting there, like, just this chunky monkey thinking of glory. Just like, ah, oh, yeah. Right? And it's just the whole thing. Right? Because it, it gives me, it gives me temporary relief from pressure, right? Or, and this is the battle for me, as pathetic as it is, I could put on worship music. I'm not really a big music guy, but I could put on worship music. And then it starts to go through my mind. And all of a sudden, I'm not, I'm not just distracting myself. I'm actually filling myself with God's promises, Right? And I'm actually considering these words that are going in this music. And, and there's, there's, you know, 
Melody does something with the soul, doesn't it? I can listen to angry music, and that will do something with my soul. Or I can listen to worship music that points my soul to God. So I am saying, for me personally, in my times of great strife, what I listen to will determine how I deal with it. And so maybe that's where you're at. You know, I encourage you, God has great things for you. Position yourself in a place where you're going to hear him, and you're not going to be disappointed. It may be a battle, and it may be difficult, but it will not be disappointing. Paul says that. We won't turn there, but in Romans 5, Paul says suffering brings about a cycle in our life. He says that when we suffer, he says when we suffer, what happens is when we allow something in our life to go wrong and we wait on God, he says it builds something in us. It builds perseverance. And the Greek word there is hypomony. Uh, God bless you with that. No, it's, it's the idea, hypo, uh, it's the idea of staying under weight. That's what it means. It's uh, steadfastness. It's the idea that you can stay under pressure. So he says when, when we allow God to allow or have difficulty in our life, when we do it, inviting Christ into that, it creates steadfastness. Or some English translations translate it patience. And he says, as we do this on a regular basis, as we're patient people, as, as we engage in the battle rather than giving up and listening to knights and wizards stuff, right? He says that that actually creates something inside of us called proven character. And you might know it as the idea of who you are, right? Because who you really are is who you are when no one's around. That's who you really are. And so when you engage in the battle... And that battle, you persevere in it. You allow God to sustain you to stay under the pressure. He says that creates in you a character. You become that. You are that. And then he says when you have that character, that breeds something inside of you. And he says it's hope. It's expectation. It's not just desire. It's expectation. And he says that we, it breeds in us. It causes us to be people that expect God to do what he said he would do. We expect it because we've developed, we've walked through it, and he's always been faithful. And then he says that that character, excuse me, that hope, that expectation, he says you'll never be ashamed exercising that expectation. And he says the reason you'll never be ashamed is because the Holy Spirit, so supernatural, outside of our control, Holy Spirit is inputting or shedding, is the word that's used there, into our hearts God's love. So you have this whole process when we open ourselves up to what God says is true. Sometimes our suffering is just accepting what God says is true about our lives. And that can be really hard. But when we accept it, we're then able to uh, be strengthened by him and walk in whatever he wants to bring us to, the repentance, right? Sometimes our suffering can be because of something that just happened in the world, that we, it just happened, right? Sometimes our, our suffering can be because we caused something to happen, we were unwise with our money, or we were, you know, we were unwise with whatever decision, right? And we uh, uh, brought, brought suffering into our life. God is even able to use that for good. Not, 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 nobody's saying you're gonna, we're going to get away from all the consequences, but he's able to use that for good. Maybe our suffering is somebody that somebody did directly to us on purpose. Maybe our, I mean, you, there's a million types. There's, there's health. There's car problems. There's money problems, right? There's everything under the sun problems, 
But when I let God come into those problems, when I, in prayer, just, I'm trying to make it as practical as I can, say, Lord, you see this. And be honest. Be like David. Lay your complaint before the Lord. I don't like this. I don't know how I could get through this. I don't know why this is happening. I, I, will you please take this away? Will you please work? Will you please, right? Just, just true prayer. And then from that place forward, when you're, when you, when you're selling it, then, then comes the praise. But thank you that you did die for me. Thank you that you did raise from the dead. Thank you that your promises say you are going to take care of me. Thank you that you say that your, your kingdom is real and you're, you're using me for it, that you, you have great plans for me, right? There's a praise section in there. And then oftentimes, whether, you know, you can go to the phone a friend or come to church or listen to some music or get in the word yourself. It's incredible. And just lastly, <clears throat> I just want to encourage you, if you feel like when you read the word, you get nothing out of it, when you read the Bible, you don't get anything out of it, we would love to talk to you. We'd love to. Because there are some really easy tools to employ to, to understand a lot better what the scripture's saying. Because some of it's weird. I mean, let's just be honest, right? Some of it you read and you go, what? What is that? How do I even deal with that, right? So it's a lot of simple tools. So, or if you feel stuck in your sin, you're like, I cannot seem to break this cycle. I do the same thing every time. Come pray with us. We'd love to. Because there's great things that God has for you. And there's, not, there's nobody in here that God does not have great things for. There's a lot of double negatives. Triple negative, actually. But hopefully you got my point. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness and great mercy. And Lord, thank you that you're calling us to your side. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize the good that you have for us and how good your plans are. I pray, Lord, where we chafe against your will, uh, that you would continue to uh, draw us, uh, Lord, that we would find ourselves like David, that when we ran from you, when we hid our sin, that our hearts and our tongues dried up like a pot shard. Lord, we want to uh, walk with you. We want to receive your correction. We want to receive your joy and your peace. Everything your spirit has for us. Lord, you've always been good to us. We want to acknowledge that. You've never done anything wrong. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless you guys.